Well, thank you, Dr. Steve. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the uh, pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 14 as we continue our line-by-line exposition of the book of Romans. While you're turning there, though, I want to tell you a little story. So I have a a good buddy of mine uh, who just has really, really bad luck when it comes to ice cream floats. Everybody know what an ice cream float is? Where you put ice cream in some sort of soda, root beer, Coke, whatever it may be. And uh, he and I, we became friends when we were in middle school. And one day he was overspending the night at my house and we were doing what boys do. We're playing video games and watching movies. And I said, hey man, do you want to get something to eat? Are you hungry? And he said, yeah, what do you got? And I said, man, let's make ice cream floats. And so I went downstairs to see what we had, what type of ice cream we had in the freezer and what type of soda we had in the refrigerator. And we had coffee ice cream and orange soda, okay? So I made him a coffee ice cream and orange soda float and brought it to him and he's like, what the heck is this? This is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen, okay? Fast forward 20-something years and my buddy was recently in a Brahms and he was trying to order a float, okay? He should know by now that floats don't go well for him. And so he goes up to the guy at the counter and he asks for a butter pecan ice cream and Coke float, okay? The kid kind of looks at him skeptically and he's like, okay, I think I can make that. And so the kid goes back and he makes a butter pecan ice cream. He puts it in a cup, he fills it with soda, and as he's walking to give it to my buddy, he runs into his manager. And he says, hey man, are we allowed to make these? And the manager's like, no, you can only make these with soft serve ice cream. And my buddy's watching this the whole time. So the kid comes up and he's like, I'm sorry, man, I can't give you this. And he's like, why not? We're not supposed to make these. You've already made it. I'm the customer. I get to choose. I will give you money, and in in return, you give me a product or service. That's how economics works. Don't say we can't make it. It's right there. It's already been made. And the guy's like, I know, but I can't sell it to you because my manager said I couldn't. Okay? And then my buddy goes, okay, let me change tactics. I would like two separate orders. I would like to order a Coke, and I would like two scoops of butter pecan ice cream. And the kid behind the counter goes, no. I know what you'll do with it. That's what he said. I know what you'll do with it. I know that as soon as I give you this, you're going to make your own float, okay? Now, this should have been a very minor deal. To my friend, it was just a float. To the kid behind the counter, though, this thing was gospel. It was like my friend was asking to buy, like, explosives and ball bearings or something like that, and he's just trying to get a float. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Because though my buddy was not, this wasn't a big deal for him, he's just trying to get a float, to this kid behind the counter, this was very important, okay? The reason I mention that is because that's the kind of issue that our text is going to deal with today. Okay? That's the kind of issue our text is going to deal with today. I want to introduce you to maybe a new theological word for you. Some of you might know this word. This might be new for others. I think we're going to put it up on the screen as well. But it is the word adiaphora. Okay? Adiaphora. Let me explain what adiaphora is as it's used in theology. It comes out of the Greco-Roman world, and it's also used in theological circles. Adiaphora are issues that are not related to morality. Okay? They're not things you have to do, but they're also things you don't have to avoid. They're just matters of conscience. So let me be very clear. Everybody look at me to make sure we understand this. The Bible gives us certain commands that everybody has to follow. Doesn't matter how your conscience feels. When the Bible says not to commit adultery, you don't get to commit adultery no matter how you feel. That is a binding rule on everyone. When the, the, the Bible would uh, tell you not to assault children, that doesn't matter about your conscience. You're not to do that, period. No one ever should do that. That is bad all the time, okay? There are do's and don'ts in the Christian life. The Bible commands us to do certain things, and it commands us to stay away from certain things. And if we end up breaking those rules, we are to rebuke one another. 
The Bible actually tells us we are to judge those in the church. We're not to hypocritically judge. That's what the Bible talks about, not judging. We are to judge those within the church, okay? That is not at all what we're dealing with today, though. Today, we're just dealing with adiaphora matters. These are things that you don't have to do, but you also don't have to avoid. They're just matters of conscience. To the kid behind the counter, making that float was a big deal. That violated his conscience. To my buddy ordering the float, it did not. So those are the issues that we're talking about today. Things like drinking or dancing or playing cards or whatever it might be. Things that are not inherently sinful, but one person might be uncomfortable with those things, and other people are totally fine with them. Okay? Those are what we're talking about today. Now, let me tell you why I'm a little bit nervous in teaching this to a room full of people is because people will fall all across the spectrum on this. Some of you have a tendency to have a, a conscience that's maybe a little too sensitive, and so you might be, uh, you might be bar- bothered by some of these things. You might be a little bit legalistic, and for you, I want to say you should watch a movie and have a drink, okay? For others of you, though, you might err the other way. I might have to say to you, you need to probably drink a little less and maybe crack open your Bible every now and again. And so the problem is, is I have to critique on both sides. So as I teach through this sermon, don't be thinking of somebody else. Don't be thinking of me. Be thinking of yourself. This text is going to say, regardless of where you land on the spectrum, you are not to be uh, dismissing other Christians and things like this because you hold different views on adiaphora issues. There are rules we keep. We are to follow the Bible. Uh, those commands are binding on everybody. But today we're talking about things that are amoral. They're not immoral or they're not moral. They're matters of conscience. So, let's pray, and then we will get into the text here in verse 1. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You for just Your overwhelming kindness and uh, grace, and we just ask for mercy. As we work through this text, I pray that You'd protect us mainly uh, against misunderstanding. I pray for those who are tempted to look down on others who don't partake in the things they do that they would not. And I pray for those who are tempted to judge others because they do things they're uncomfortable with, that they would not do that as well. And so may your words stand over all of us. May we always submit our hearts to your word and allow it to rebuke us, allow it to change us. And so we love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Okay, look at the first phrase there. As for the one who is weak in in faith. Let me explain what this means because over the next several weeks, we're going to be dealing with these adiaphora issues. So you need to understand kind of the context here, okay? Imagine for a second that you grew up Jewish, okay? You grew up Jewish in the first century, and uh, you are used to hearing that you must take the Sabbath off. The Sabbath in Judaism is Saturday, so your entire life, you shut things down on Friday night, and you don't work on the Sabbath. You don't work on, uh, on Saturday, and so you've been told that your entire life. Every week, you take Saturday off, Okay? You've also been told your entire life that you can't eat certain kinds of foods. You can't eat meat unless it's prepared in a kosher way. You can't eat pork. You can't eat bacon. If we as Christians today could still not eat bacon, I would just go to hell, all right? I can't avoid that salty, crunchy, but if you're a Jew in the first century, you've been told this is bad. You have to stay away from it, stay away from it, stay away from it. Now, now imagine that you get converted and you become a Christian you know that Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law for you. You know that you're no longer bound by those regulations. But listen, this is really important. Your conscience hasn't caught up to your theology yet. The first time you go to try to do something on Saturday, though you know you can, you feel a little bit uncomfortable. The first time you go to eat some bacon, though it's delicious and though it smells amazing, you feel a little bit nervous as you do it, okay? That is what the Apostle Paul means by the weak person. The weak person throughout Romans 14 is the person whose conscience has not caught up to their theology. 
Their conscience still bothers them on issues that it shouldn't, but it does in the meantime, and they're not to violate their conscience in the meantime. Now, let me tell you why this is fascinating to me. I grew up thinking that the strong Christian was the one that stayed away from stuff. The strong Christian was the one who doesn't drink and doesn't play cards and doesn't dance and doesn't listen to rock music, and and the, the strong Christians are the ones that stay away from stuff. The text here, and listen, don't get mad at me, this is biblical, the text here is going to say the exact opposite. The text is going to say that if your conscience is bothered by all these little things that are not biblical commands, that's not because you're strong in your faith in this area, it's because you're weak, okay? Doesn't mean you don't love Jesus, doesn't mean you're not a Christian, it means you have to have all these braces to help bolster your faith. So I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, I played basketball, and I was excellent at playing basketball. If you think you could have beaten me in my prime, the answer is you could have not, okay? My dad could drop me off at the gym, and I could play basketball all day and wake up the next morning, and I'm not sore. I feel great. Why? Because I'm a kid, okay? Now when I try to play basketball, things are very different. I have to wear an ankle brace, okay? I have to stretch for like 20 minutes, If I want to play basketball with some guys in college, I have to say things like, excuse me, gentlemen, does anyone here have some Tums? My antacid is flaring up, okay? Those things don't make me stronger. I have to rely on a brace and stretching and Tums because I'm weak in that area. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The strong Christian is the one who knows that their identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. And in addition to Christ, they don't have to add their own little checklists of do's and don'ts that are not in the Bible to help brace up their faith. Paul's going to say that that actually is a weakness. Now, that's counterintuitive. That's counterintuitive for us, but that's what the text is going to consistently mean. So the strong is going to be the one whose conscience is not bothered by these little trifles, whereas the weak is going to be the person whose conscience is bothered by those little trifles. Now, the word here in uh, Greek for weak actually is a pejorative term, okay? It's the Greek word ostheneo. It is pejorative. What the text is going to say is that there are some Christians that are okay with certain things, and he calls them the strong. There are other Christians that are not okay with those same things, and he's going to call them the weak. He's going to say that they should love one another. They're both Christians, but he is going to encourage in this text the weak to have their conscience catch up with their theology, to have their conscience catch up with their theology. He will side with the strong. Look at Romans 14, 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That's where the Apostle Paul is going. Okay? Now, he gives the reason. Why are we to welcome the one who is weak in faith? Why are we to welcome the one whose conscience might be troubled by eating meat sacrificed to idols or keeping holy days or these kind of things he's talking about? It continues, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Here's what he means by this. He's not saying we can't debate one another. Okay? He's not saying we can't disagree with one another. I want you guys, after you leave this sermon, to go get lunch with somebody or talk about these issues in your community groups, and I want there to be loving, nonviolent fighting. Okay? That's what I want. Those things are good and healthy. That's iron sharpening iron. What he's saying, though, is that these are issues where we still have to count people that disagree with us as brothers in Christ. Okay? If your church starts denying the Trinity, go to another church. Your church starts ordaining those who practice homosexuality, go to another church. If you meet members, though, where you disagree on these minor issues of what movies you can or can't watch or what kind of music you can listen to or whatever, this is not something you split the church over. As I like to say, don't get mad, get coffee. Okay? talk about these things with one another. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, here's why I love verse 2. It sounds hilarious if you take it out of context, okay? If I owned a steakhouse, I would put this verse on my sign. Zach's Steakhouse, the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Romans 14 too, okay? So let me give you some background of what it's talking about here in this text, okay? Imagine that you grew up in the Greco-Roman world surrounded by paganism, okay? You're used to going to temples. You're used to doing pagan worship. So let's say you grew up in Corinth in Greece. What you would do is you would go to the temple of Asclepius. That's the Greek god of uh, healing. So your kid gets sick. Instead of going and doing your copay and all the medical stuff, you would go to the temple of Asclepius, and you would offer a sacrifice. You'd kill a goat. You would kill a cow. You would kill a pig. The Jews didn't do that, but the Greeks did as a sacrifice. And say, dear god Asclepius, please heal my kid, and you would offer the sacrifice. Well, what you would then do is you would go next door into a room there in the temple, which served as a restaurant. They're not just going to waste this meat. You would go kind of to the ye olde chilies that's attached to the temple, and you would eat the sacrifice you just made. And it was a way that you communed with your God. Eating in the Bible is a mark of fellowship. That's why when we partake of communion, we're doing that with our God, Christ, okay? But what they would do is you'd offer the sacrifice, and then you would eat this meat in honor of your God. What then would they do with the leftover meat? Because I don't know how hungry you are, but you cannot eat a whole cow in one day, okay? What they would then do is they would sell that meat into the marketplace. So the place that you would buy your meat is not Walmart. You would go into the marketplace and you would buy this meat that has been used in a pagan ritual. And the question is, can we as Christians in the first century eat this meat? This is especially the issue that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians. And what Paul's going to say is, yes, you can eat the meat because it doesn't belong to Satan. It belongs to Jesus. You can't eat it in the temple. You can't partake of pagan worship, but you can eat of this meat today. Now, imagine that you're somebody, though, that grew up worshiping Asclepius, and you're somebody who grew up worshiping these pagan deities, and now you become a Christian. What's going to happen when you're eating this meat? You're going to feel like you're partaking in paganism. You're going to remember all the times that you've offered sacrifices and sang hymns to false gods and all these things, and it might violate your conscience. What the Apostle Paul is doing there is he's saying, that's the kind of week I'm talking about. He's not saying you don't really love Jesus. He's saying there are those whose consciences has not caught up to their theology yet. That's what he's talking about, about eating vegetables and eating meat. The strong Christian is the one who knows my relationship with God is based on Christ. The weak Christian is the one who says, I know my relationship with God is based on Christ, but I also feel like it's based a little bit on eating or drinking or doing or not doing these extra things. And that's what he's critiquing here. Now, let me ask you this question. What is the difference in this text, in all of Romans 14, between a weak person and a false teacher? Okay? A weak person and a false teacher. Let me tell you the difference, because this is important, and these lines get blurred in a lot of churches. The weak person, according to Paul, is the person that says, I personally am uncomfortable eating meat, but other people can't. Okay? The false teacher says, because I'm uncomfortable with it, nobody can do it. Okay? It's okay for you to say, I personally am uncomfortable drinking alcohol. That's totally fine. What you can't then say is that, therefore, everyone must be uncomfortable drinking alcohol. I'm personally uncomfortable with yoga or whatever, therefore, nobody can do yoga, whatever the issue is, okay? So notice that the weak person, it's a matter of personal conscience. The false teacher is the one who forbids things the Bible doesn't forbid. It's the person who reads their conscience onto everybody else. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Let's see what the teachings of demons are who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, and I would add, or from drinks, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So this text is saying that you have a right to do what you want when it comes to your conscience on these non-moral issues, these odd offer issues, but you may not read your conscience onto everybody else. 
You may not read your conscience onto everyone else. To do so, to think that holiness is a matter of eating and drinking, the Bible's going to say is teaching a doctrine of demons. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Okay? <clears throat> this verse begins with a command to each side of the debate. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Now, here's why I love this. This, uh, this rebuke the text is going to give us is just so appropriate to each side of the debate. If you're someone who thinks that you can partake in all these non-sinful things, your tendency will be to look down on those that disagree with you. Your tendency will to think of yourself as somewhat enlightened, somewhat free in your Christian freedoms, and then to look down on people that disagree with you as outdated, unbiblical, irrelevant, and you despise them, meaning you just kind of dismiss them. You kind of think of them as worthless, and it will say, do not do that, okay? So at any point, if I say that something is sinful and you didn't know that, do not despise me, okay? Conversely, it's going to say, if you're someone whose conscience is a little more sensitive, your conscience doesn't allow you to do certain things, don't judge those who do, which is exactly what those kind of people do. The strong have a tendency to look down on the weak, and the weak have a tendency to judge the strong, and the text is going to say, you don't get to do that. You have to walk in Christian harmony. You have to love one another when it comes to these ah diaphora issues. Everybody with me? Let me give you a great summary of what this text means. This comes from a New Testament scholar <clears throat> named Douglas Moo, who's a Romans uh, expert. He says this, Despise connotes a disdainful, condescending judgment, an and attitude that we can well imagine the strong majority who prided themselves on their enlightened perspective, taking those whom they considered to be foolishly hung up on the trivia of a bygone era. The weak, Paul suggests, responded in kind, considering themselves to be the righteous remnant who alone upheld true standards of piety and righteousness and who were standing in judgment over those who fell beneath these standards. Paul calls on each side to stop criticizing the other. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, let me give you the most controversial part of the sermon, which is where I just list a bunch of stuff that you can do, but you don't have to do. Okay? That's the job of a pastor. The job of a pastor is to say, what does this text mean in its, the first century context? And then how do I take that same meaning into America, into Texas in 2019? Okay? So that's what we're going to do. In the first century, all diaphora issues were things like Sabbath keeping, eating meat sacrificed to idols, and even to some extent circumcision. Uh, in our day, we have different issues, so I want to mention them. So everything I'm about to mention is not something you have to do, but it's also not something you have to avoid. Okay? I'm offering you a menu, a biblical menu. You don't have to order everything on the menu, but you don't have to tell somebody else who orders onions on their burger that onions are gross. Okay? So I'm, these are all things that you don't have to do, but you also don't have to avoid them. So here we go. Number one, eating meat. You don't have to eat meat if you don't want to. If you want to be a vegan, you want to be a vegetarian, you are not sinning. Conversely, you don't have to stay away from meat, okay? It is okay to eat meat. What you can't do is read your conscience on everyone else. Sorry, PETA, right? Number two, drinking alcohol. You don't have to drink alcohol. You're never going to have us get up here at Parkway and say, if you don't go home and have a margarita tonight, you are sinning. You don't have to drink alcohol, but you also don't have to avoid drinking alcohol. It is not sinful to drink. Yes, there are things that could be sinful, getting drunk, breaking the law, whatever it might be, but drinking in and of itself is not sinful. If you're uncomfortable, don't do it. If you're comfortable, do it, but not in front of your brother who is uncomfortable, okay? Next, keeping a Sabbath. I'm not going to talk about this a lot because Jeff's going to mention this in the sermon next week. 
you don't have to keep a Sabbath. You don't have to do that. But you also don't have to avoid doing that if you want to, okay? It is a matter that is adiaphora. Now, I would encourage you to rest from time to time. You're not wired to just work 24-7 and never take a break. But if you work eight days in a row, you have not sinned, okay? You don't have to take a Sabbath, but you don't have to avoid taking a Sabbath. Next, a particular type of schooling. Uh Uh-oh, this divides Christians for some reason, and mean moms online for some reason as well, okay? You don't have to homeschool your kids, but you don't have to avoid homeschooling. You don't have to public school your kids, but you don't have to avoid public schooling. You don't have to private school your kids, but you don't have to avoid private schooling. This is a matter that is adiaphora. But Zach, don't you think one form's better than the others? Yes, but it's not my job to get up here and give you my opinion. My job is just to let you know what the Bible does and doesn't allow. Okay? Next, getting tattoos. (gasps) What? Did he say that in a Christian church? Yes. You don't have to get a tattoo, okay? Don't think you have to but you also don't have to avoid getting a tattoo. It's a matter that's adiaphora, okay? Now, some of you are thinking, now, Zach, that's not a matter that's adiaphora. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, the one place in the Bible that tells you not to get a tattoo, says not to get a tattoo. What do we do with that? Three things I have with that kind of response, okay? Number one, that's in the Mosaic Law. We've spent half of Romans explaining how we are no longer under the Mosaic Law, and so now you don't get to just take little parts of the Mosaic Law that you don't like because they're countercultural or whatever, and then try to apply them to the believer today. Number two, the context of that passage. Do you know what that passage says? It says not to trim the edges of your beard, nor to make tattoo marks on your body, or to cut yourself for the dead. That's what it says, okay? Yet I see a lot of men in here who at some point in their life have trimmed their beard who might think that tattoos are sinful, Okay? You got to do all of it if you want to take all of it. That's the context. Don't trim your beard or get this tattoo. You can't just have one or the other. And then lastly, the context there is about pagan worship. It says, or to make cut marks on your body for the dead. It's not that God's against you getting a cross tattooed on your arm. He's against you doing what the pagans did, where they would cut themselves to make the gods listen to them and tattoo themselves with the names of their gods, okay? So yes, some tattoos would be sinful, if you have some sort of, you know, inappropriate nudity or you're getting Satan tattooed on your forehead or something like that, but in and of itself, they are not sin. Don't get mad. Get coffee. Email if you want to sit down, if you want to sit down and chat more, okay? Watching TV. You don't have to watch TV, but you also don't have to avoid watching TV. Now, listen, are there some shows you should avoid? Yes, there are some shows you should avoid. What are they? I can't list all of them. This is a matter of Christian conscience. If you're not sure, talk to other Christians in your community, okay? But watching TV in and of itself is not sinful. You don't have to do it, but you don't have to avoid it. There are certain things you should avoid, but we can wrestle through what those things are at another time. Watching movies, assuming that they're not pornographic or somehow inappropriate or something like that, you don't have to watch movies, but you can watch movies. You don't have to avoid watching movies. Are there some movies you should avoid? Sure. But that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Everybody look at me. This is the the big problem we have in evangelical Christianity on this issue. We're we're prone to extremism. We hate nuance. We think because there's some bad movies, stay away from all movies. Because some people get drunk, stay away from all alcohol. Because there's some bad TV shows, let's just get the TV out of our house or whatever it might be. We have a tendency to go to extremes. The Bible will make you do nuance. Okay? If I go to my son and he's playing with some other kid's toy and I say, hey, buddy, let's stop playing with that toy. I don't want him to turn around and say, fine, I'm not going to play with any toys. No, I want him to play with these toys, but not these toys. The Bible will make you do nuance. 
okay? Smoking a cigar, like the great Baptist pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who always had a cigar. You don't have to smoke a cigar. You might not like that, but you don't have to avoid smoking a cigar. Yes, if you're having 20 cigars a day, you're not being faithful to your body, but the same thing is true if you're eating McDonald's three times a day, so just be consistent. Just be consistent. You don't have to smoke a cigar, but you don't have to avoid smoking a cigar. A particular diet, weird fads that come up every week where there's some new diet, do eat meat, don't eat meat, do eat bread, don't eat bread, that all contradict each other. If you want to follow one of those diets, you can, but you don't need to read it on to everybody else. It's not something that you have to do, but it's also not something you have to avoid, fad diets. Listening to rock music. <gasps> okay? You don't have to listen to rock music if you don't like it, but you also don't have to avoid listening to rock music. Yes, are there some songs you should probably avoid? Sure. If the song is in worship to Satan or it's especially sexually gratuitous or something like that, yeah, don't listen to that. But for the other 95% of it, it's fine. Why should the devil have all the good music? Something is not evil just because it runs through a distortion pedal. Everybody with me? Okay. I heard an amen. That's what I like. Okay. <clears throat> ACDC. Okay, here we go. Owning a gun. Owning a gun. Okay? You don't have to own a gun. There's not a biblical requirement that you own a gun. Think of some way to protect your family, yes, but you don't have to own a gun. But conversely, you don't have to avoid owning a gun. You do if you're in a country that doesn't allow it, but in a place like the U.S. where it's allowed, you're free to do that. Yes, be safe. Yes, get training. Yes, make sure you keep it away from your kids, etc. But it's an adiaphora issue. Okay? Dancing. You don't have to dance. Okay? I personally don't, not because I'm against it morally, but because I just dance like a super white guy. Okay? I look like I'm getting hit by a taser or something. And so I just don't. But it's not sinful. You don't have to avoid dancing. Now, are there some types of dancing you should avoid? Yes. If you're all up on somebody who's not your spouse, if you're being immodest, those would be things to avoid, but dancing in and of itself is not sinful. It's adiaphora. Gambling. Oh, man. What? Gambling. Let me tell you everything the Bible says about whether to or not gamble. Ready? Here it goes. I'm going to read all the passages that the Bible says about this issue. I'm done. Okay? You don't have to gamble but you also don't have to avoid gambling. Yes, are there some things that could make it sinful? Sure, if you're doing it in a way that's illegal, okay? If you are blowing your paycheck and being unwise, if you have some sort of addiction, if you're doing that instead of working hard so that you're just testing God to provide for you, that would be wrong. But in and of itself, you spending $20 to go play poker with your friends or something like that is not sinful in and of itself, okay? Yoga. This is one that's come up recently over the last five to ten years or so. Can Christians do yoga? Here's the deal. You don't have to do yoga, okay? I don't, not because I'm against it, but I'm just not flexible at all. Here's me touching my toes. I'm not exaggerating. Ready? Here it goes. I don't know if you can see or not. That's just past my knees. I stretch every week, and that's as far as I can go, okay? You don't have to do yoga, but you also don't have to avoid doing yoga. Now, listen to this one. You do have to avoid Hinduism, okay? So if you're going to a place that does yoga and they are saying prayers to Hindu gods and they are meditating to Hindu gods and you're trying to become one with the universe, that's a problem. But if you're just going to some gym to stretch, that's not sin, okay? And a lot of it will depend on your conscience. We've got one of our deacons here who's a guy who got saved out of Hinduism when he moved to the United States and became a Christian. He doesn't do yoga because it violates his conscience. He knows it's not sinful for other people, but for him, he stays away from it because he's waiting for his conscience to match up to his theology, okay? 
And I could listen to, I mentioned a bunch of other things. Now, here's the thing. Everybody take a big breath. <sighs> Don't get mad at me. Some of you are thinking, Zach, you just forbid things that I thought were fine. Others of you are thinking, Zach, you just allowed things that I did not think were fine. If you are judging me or despising me, you're breaking the very command of this text. This text is for you to look at yourself. It's for you to question what you've always believed. Don't come to a sermon just to have it affirm what you already hold. You should come to a sermon to let God rebuke you and you be changed. Okay? And look at verse 3. Here's the reason why. We're not to despise each other. We're not to judge each other. For God has welcomed him. That word for welcome is the same Greek word that was used for welcome in verse 4. Here's the idea. If God has accepted someone and God has adopted them, you as a Christian are not free to reject them. You as a Christian are not, your thoughts and God's thoughts should be lining up. So if God has accepted them, even though they disagree with you on this issue, you don't get to reject them. Let's divide over doctrine. Let's not divide over adiaphora. Let's not divide over these issues that are adiaphora. Okay, so Zach, what does this look like practically? Let me give you a really practical example of this. <clears throat> there is a show that I like watching that is not inappropriate or sinful. There's no nudity. There's, there's nothing that would make it inappropriate. But in that show, there are bad guys who do drugs, okay? The bad guys partake in drug use, okay? Now, I have a buddy that was saved out of drug use. He was saved out of a meth addiction. And so one day I went up to him and I asked him, I said, hey, do you watch this show? And he goes, man, I can't watch that show. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't watch that show? He said, well, I used to do meth. This used to be my identity. And then I got saved and God's delivered me from it by God's grace. So when I watch that show, it reminds me of who I used to be. It makes me feel awful. It makes me forget my identity in Christ. And so for me, I just stay away from it. Okay? So here's what this looks like for both sides of this. I am free to watch that show because there's nothing that would make it sinful for me to watch, okay? My buddy should not watch that show because it violates his conscience. It doesn't make him love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. If we are hanging out together, look, I don't watch the show. If we're hanging out together, I watch a different show because I want to be loving to my brother. But here's my hope for him. My hope for him is that in 10 years, he can maybe sit down and watch that show and it not violate his conscience. You've got the strong, you've got the weak, both are Christians, both love God, both are to accept each other, but the Apostle Paul is going to encourage the weak to step up, to slowly shape their conscience over time, okay? Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look at the first part of verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? In verse 3, who was the one doing the passing of judgment? Was that the strong or the weak? Which one? Yell it out. In verse 3, who's doing the judging? The weak. Verse 4 is going to continue critiquing the weak. So everybody, everybody again, look at me. I want to be an equal opportunity hater up here. The Bible stands over everyone. In a few weeks, Romans 14 is going to come back around and push the strong. Okay? It's going to come back around and critique the strong. It's going to say there are things you should lay down for the sake of your brothers. But today, in verse 4, it's going to push the weak. And so that's who I want to talk to now. If you're somebody who your conscience is especially troubled by some of these things, even though they're not sin in and of themselves, I want to speak to you for a second because this text twice will tell you not to judge others. So I want to speak to some of these oppositions that people bring up. So what some people will say is this, okay, Zach, I hear you. I don't think that this activity is sinful, but I think we should avoid it because that's the, quote, wisest way to live. You ever heard somebody say that? I had a New Testament professor that said that drinking wasn't sinful, but he avoided it because it was the wisest way to live. Here's the problem with that. You know who doesn't think it's the wisest way to live? God. God constantly in His Word gives us wisdom. Stay away from the adulteress's house, right? That's wisdom. Uh, oh, flee youthful lust. That's wisdom. 
But the Bible does not say that the wisest way to live is to do what the Pharisees did, to build fences around the law so you don't actually get too close to committing the sin, okay? You know who else doesn't think that's the wisest way to live? Jesus, whose first miracle was to turn water into gallons and gallons of alcoholic wine. It's the Greek word oinos. It's the same thing that Ephesians uses when it says, don't get drunk with wine. It takes a lot of non-fermented grape juice to get drunk, okay? Jesus himself drank so much so that people accused him of being a drunkard. He didn't. He wasn't a drunkard, right? But you don't accuse somebody of being a drunkard who's a teetotaler, who's out there preaching against alcohol. Jesus doesn't think that's the wisest way to live. The wisest way to live is not to add laws to God's laws. Amen? Let me tell you why I keep mentioning this. I don't care about whether you drink or don't. I don't care about that. I care about the sufficiency of Scripture. If you're adding a command to the Bible ever, that's false teaching. That's you telling God, He forgot all these commands that you, who are so enlightened and more holy than God, think that He should have put in there. That is not okay. That is not okay. Number two, well, Zach, if someone is offended by this activity, I can't do it ever. Well, that's not right. It's not that if anyone's offended by this activity, you can't do it ever. Biblically, it's that you can't do it in that person's presence. 1 Corinthians 10, 28 through 29. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, talking about this idol meat, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. Look at this next line. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? It's not that because someone could be offended by this, you can never do it. You just don't do it when your brother's in front of you. Every time you eat meat at a restaurant, there will be some vegetarian who walks in and is offended by that. That doesn't mean you can't eat meat at a restaurant. It does mean if you're sitting down at the table with somebody who's a vegetarian and they're uncomfortable with it, that you lay it aside that night for the sake of your brother or sister, okay? Sometimes people will say, okay, Zach, I hear what you're saying, but I've just seen this thing cause so much abuse. I've just seen this thing cause so much trouble. We should just get rid of it altogether, okay? Maybe you've had a, someone you loved who was killed with a gun, and so now you're anti-gun. Maybe you had a father who would get drunk and abuse you, and so now you're anti-alcohol. Say, look at me if that's you. I am so, so, so sorry that that's happened to you. Those things should have never happened, and I'm so sorry that they have happened, okay? But please hear me. Abuse does not negate proper use. You don't get rid of one of God's good gifts just because it can be abused. You get rid of the abuse. You get rid of the abuse. You can hit somebody with a Bible. You don't throw out the Bible. You just use it appropriately. Martin Luther, the spearhead of the Protestant Reformation, says this, Do you suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? The sun, the moon, and the stars have been worshipped. Shall we pluck them out of the sky? His point is a very biblical point. Get rid of the abuse. Don't get rid of the gift. Don't get rid of the gift. Okay, Zach, well, you should avoid doing these things. Now, listen to this one. So you can avoid the appearance of evil. Okay? You need to do that so you can avoid the appearance of evil. Look at me because people use this verse all the time incorrectly. When the Bible tells you to avoid the appearance of evil, it's because you're actually doing something that's evil. It's not because you're doing something that somebody could misdefine as evil. You're always doing that. There are churches that think our church is in sin because our women here can wear pants. There are churches that think our church is in sin because we use the ESV instead of the King James Version of the Bible. Okay? You're always offending somebody. Okay? So what is it? when the Bible says to stay away from the appearance of evil, it's not because somebody could get mad. Jesus doesn't do that. He hangs out with lost people and people accuse him falsely. Okay? When it says to stay away from the appearance of evil, it's because what you're actually doing is actually evil. If you go to college and your roommate is your sister, people will think that you're living with your girlfriend, but you're not sinning. But if you're actually coming out of your girlfriend's apartment at 7 a.m., now you're not avoiding the appearance of evil. Okay? 
Okay, Zach, I hear that. Uh, I need to try to attack this from another way. There's too much Christian freedom going on in here, so I need to try to shut that down. So I'm going to say this. God told me personally that I can't do this thing. No, he didn't. If I offer you eggs and bacon, and you say, well, Zach, I, I, can't, I can't eat bacon. And I say, why? Is that a health issue? And you say, no. God told me I couldn't eat bacon. For everyone else, they can eat bacon, but God, God came to me in a dream, and he told me I can't eat bacon. You've added to Scripture, okay? You've added to Scripture. So hear me. We believe that God guides you today. God prompts you. He guides you. I felt called to come to Parkway. It was very strong that I felt like God was calling me to come to Parkway. But what God doesn't do today is he does not give new commands, and he does not give new doctrine outside of his word. Amen? Okay? Now, if you say, okay, well, Zach, I, I, God told me to stay away from alcohol because I'm an alcoholic. Okay, I'm okay with that. But he told you that in his word, not adding this extra command just for you and for nobody else. Okay? And then lastly, okay, Zach, I hear all that. Let me try it from another angle. What about my kids? Okay, so if you are a kid, if you are somebody who is under your parents' roof and you are not married, please hear what I'm about to say. Your parents get to dictate what you can and can't do. If you're a kid right now, you don't get to pick what's adiaphora. Your parents have given you a law, okay? You need to obey your parents. Your parents can restrict where you go. They can restrict what movies you watch. They can restrict what music you listen to. Your parents have the say until you are out of their house, okay? But for the parents, please hear this. Because some of you are nervous. You're saying, Zach, please don't tell my kids they can drink when they get older. Please don't tell my kids that they can get a tattoo. They're going to get something weird, okay? So hear me. If you're a, if you're a parent, please hear me. You're not going to keep your kids away from sin by keeping them away from things that aren't sinful. You're going to keep your kids from sin by making Jesus look beautiful. You're going to keep your kids away from sin by letting them see how great Christ is. That's how it works. I guarantee you in the American South, in the Bible Belt, your kids have a much higher chance of going to hell because of your legalism than because of licentiousness. So don't think, oh no, now my family's ruined. No. The way that you disciple kids is the same way you disciple adults, by pointing them to Jesus. If you're a visitor here today, this is a weird lesson on Christian rules and morality, but Christianity is bigger than that. Christianity is about how Christ has won our salvation, has lived the life we should have lived, has died on a cross, has been resurrected. It's all about Christ. That's how one is made a friend of God, not by keeping this list of do's and don'ts, but once one becomes a Christian, we have to wrestle through this idea of Christian freedom. Look at the end of verse 4. It continues, it is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. There is a tendency anytime when you teach on Christian freedom for people to want to pull the reins on grace. They'll say, well, Zach, if you do that, people will slide off into sin. Nobody has ever slid off into sin who's properly understood grace. The only people that slide off into sin are those that abuse and misunderstand grace. You don't make a relationship with God based on fear. If this happens, if we tell people there's too much freedom, oh, no. You make a relationship with God based on love, perfect love that casts out fear. You make a relationship with God in grace. This text is saying the reason you don't have to judge one another is because there's already a judge. You don't have to give an account for these awe deoffer issues. We do give an account for each other when it comes to sin, but when it comes to matters of conscience, we don't give an account to each other. It is God that will judge the heart. If you're really a Christian and you use what I've said today to start trying to actually drift into actual sin, if you have the Spirit, God will convict you. Brothers and sisters in Christ will come around you and they will call you back to repentance. There's such an encouragement here in verse 4, not only when it says that we're judged by Christ, but rather it's Christ who's able to make us stand. If someone truly knows Christ, the Spirit is at work in their hearts, correcting them and rebuking them and shaping them and guiding them. And sometimes these things change. 
So I'll, I'll give you an example. There was a show that I used to watch, again, not sinful, not inappropriate, but when I would watch it, I would feel further away from Christ. I would feel cynical. I would feel upset. So I stopped watching it for a time, okay? It wasn't sinful. I wouldn't say that's wrong for other people to watch. I just didn't watch it for a season because it made me feel bad spiritually. But now I'm able to watch it again, and it doesn't have the same effect, okay? And so these things can sometimes change over time. Your conscience is constantly being shaped by the Word of God. Okay, to wrap up this sermon, what I want to do is I want to give 11 qualifiers for the things that I've said, okay? So before you run out of here and say, Zach said we could party. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I want to give 11 qualifiers for what does it mean to partake in Christian freedom, okay? It, when you're thinking, should I partake in this cultural activity? Should I do this thing? Should I go to this location? These are questions that you can ask, and we're going to put them up on the screen that help you discern these things. So let me give you a few of these. Number one, is what I'm about to do a sin, or does it violate any commands in Scripture? Okay? Christian freedom does not extend to sins. Christian freedom is about things that are already not sins. Everybody with me on that? I remember talking to a guy, and he's like, man, I really feel like I'm growing in God's grace. And I said, tell me about it. And he said, I grew up in a real legalistic Baptist church that said I wasn't allowed to drink, and now I drink. I said, okay, great. And he goes, I was also told that I wasn't allowed to curse, and so now I curse. And I'm like, oh, hold on. Something, something's gone awry here. The Bible's clear to let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. He was confusing freedom and actual sins. Okay, don't do that. Is what I'm about to do an actual sin? If it is, doesn't matter what your conscience says. Stay away from it. Okay? Number two. Will I lose an opportunity to share the gospel by forbidding something the Bible allows? Will I lose an opportunity to share the gospel by forbidding something the Bible allows? Beware of evangelical monasteries. Be well of evangelical monkdom where we withdraw from the world and we can't actually share the gospel or evangelize because we turn people off by adding these rules to the Bible that aren't actually there. Dan Wallace, who's a Greek scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary, says this, Wine is so often connected with the blessings of God that we are hard-pressed to figure out why so many modern Christians view drink as the worst of all evils. Why, if one didn't know better, he might think that God actually wanted us to enjoy life. Unfortunately, the only Bible most of our pagan friends will read is the one written on our lives and spoken from our lips. The Bible they know is a book of thou shalt nots, and the God they know is a cosmic killjoy. Number three, will I lose self-control and or be mastered by the thing in which I participate? Will I lose self-control and or be mastered by the thing in which I participate? You should not participate in something if it is going to own you, okay? If you actually struggle with alcoholism, you should not drink at least for a season. You'll have other people that can come around you to help you if it's time, if and when you get to drink again, okay? But you don't get to lose control. You don't get to be mastered by anything other than Christ. So there are things you should stay away from. If you're prone to anger and violence, you might need to stay away from movies where there's anger and violence, whereas somebody else who's not prone to that might not have to. Number four, will I be doing this in front of someone whom I know will fall into sin because of this activity or location, okay? You have to lay down your rights, not forever, but for the sake of your brother so that they don't fall into sin. Number five, is it a violation of the law? Always a good question to ask, okay? So drinking's not sinful. Drinking underage, drunk driving, these kind of things would be sinful, okay? Would be sinful. It's a violation of the law. Number six, can I do this with a clear conscience? Can I do this with a clear conscience? Do not violate your conscience. Don't violate your conscience on these audiophora issues, okay? But you can reshape your conscience around the Word of God over time, and your conscience will obey. Scripture leads, and the conscience follows, okay? 
but don't violate your conscience in the meantime. If you're uncomfortable with any of the things I said, don't do them. That's why I said you don't have to do them, nor do you have to avoid them. Number seven, I think this might be one of the, uh, the best questions here. Can I do this to the glory of God? Can I do this to the glory of God? If you can't, don't do it. If you can't do it to the glory of God, don't do it. Number eight, will I regret this later in life? Will I regret this later in life, okay? It is not sinful to have a tattoo. Most people I've met who have regrets with tattoos don't regret that they got a tattoo. They regret what they got or where they got it, okay? What you think is awesome at 18, you will not think is awesome at 30, okay? At 18, you're like, I'm going to get a huge flaming hawk riding on an eagle on my back. And then you turn 30 and you're like, that's just a bird riding another bird. Why does he need to do that? He could just fly on his own. Why, why, did, I, why did I get that, right? So it's not sinful, but be wise. Also, if you plan to get married, keep that in mind. Your body belongs to your spouse. They might have a say on what they do or don't like with things like piercings and tattoos, okay? Number nine, where does my conscience need to be reshaped around the Word of God? Where does my conscience need to be reshaped around the Word of God? One of the best conversations that I feel like I've had uh, with Jeff Ashley is when we sat down and we said to each other, okay, nobody else is here, just me and you. What are some of the issues that you still feel like are sinful, though you know the Bible doesn't really say that they are? That was a great question. Maybe y'all should ask each other that question at lunch. There are certain things that I see and I think, yeah, that person must be lost. And I think, that's not sinful. What am I doing? I'm adding to the Scriptures, okay? Number 10, two more. Does this make me love God more or less? Does this make me love God more or less? You are commanded to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that's the greatest command. How do you know that's the greatest command? Because Jesus says, this is the greatest command, okay? So if you're doing something that is not making you love God more, you should avoid that thing, and you should do things that stir your affections for Christ, okay? Things that stir your affections for Christ. And then lastly, this is a convicting question here. Am I more prone to abuse Christian freedom and fall into the sin of licentiousness? Or am I more prone to avoid Christian freedom and fall into the sin of legalism, okay? Now, stay with us over the next few weeks because we're going to come back and hit this issue from different angles. This text today critiques those the Bible calls weak. That's not meant to be mean or nasty or anything like that. It is meant to say, maybe this is the first time that you heard that strong Christianity is not staying away from stuff. But over the next few weeks, you're also going to see the text come back and hit the strong. Again, God is an equal opportunity hater. The Word of God stands over everybody, regardless of background or what your experience was or whatever it might be. So as we wrestle through this text, I want us to be thinking about these things. Let me pray for us as the uh, guys helping serve communion come up to prepare the elements. Almighty God, I pray for anybody who is visiting with us, and this is the first sermon that they hear. I pray that they might know that Christianity is much bigger than this. This is one issue we're dealing with today because the Bible deals with it and we're walking through Romans, but I pray that they might know Christ. I pray that if there is somebody here that has not bowed the knee, that has not submitted themselves to Christ's rule and reign, that they would do so now, that they would repent, that they would throw their sins at the feet of Jesus and realize He is the eternal Son of God who, while remaining God, became man, lived a life on their behalf, died for their sins, and was raised again if they will but simply repent and trust in Him. I thank you for this text. I pray against bitterness as people leave and they say, I disagree with that. Zach allowed things I think are sinful. Zach said things were sinful. I didn't think are sinful. Whatever it is, I pray that we might follow this text, that we might have grace on these issues. Yes, that we would hold a high view of doctrine, that we don't waver at all on that. There's very little gray room when it comes to doctrine. But when it comes to issues that are not sin, there's freedom here, that we are judged by you. We stand or fall for you, not for one another. 
So we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.